This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Before I even saw an image in the air, I knew something was wrong. And it was just kind of in the air. I could feel it. And I just knew something was wrong. The second thing I saw standing while he talked to me was the fact of the way he handled riots and disturbances out there. You have to move fast. And he did. But, uh, the inmates were dissatisfied. I think the administration really didn't see it coming. And it just, uh, it just ignited. It got interesting that night. And I used to take my tear gas gun and go down and sit my cage down there and uh, keep peace, you know. <laughs> there was enough up there that knew that I maintained discipline and that no rioting would be permitted that somebody was going to be killed. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Stool Pigeon Saturday, Disturbing Justice Edition. Today we have a very special guest. Mr. Calvin May, can you introduce yourself and where you're from and uh, where you grew up? My name is Calvin May, as just mentioned, and I was born and raised in Cortland, New York. It's uh, about 250 miles <laughs> northwest of New York City. And it's a pretty good-sized town. Mm -hmm. And I lived there until I was 18. Then I joined the Army and was in the Army for three years. And I got out, went to college for two years, then went back into the Army for two years, met my wife, and she used to live here in Idaho. So when I got out of the Army, I moved here to Idaho and... One of her friends worked at the Idaho State Correctional Institution. So he invited me to spend a day with him at the Idaho State Correctional Institution. And so I just spent the day with him and hung around the inmates, ate lunch with the inmates. And he was a day shift officer. And I thought, you know, this might not be a bad place to work. So I applied and got hired. And I started in September of 1979, and I worked there till I retired in May of 2017. So I've been wow. retired for about three years, so I worked quite a long time. Yeah, is that like 38 years you were? Yes. And was that pretty common where most of the other officers that you worked with, had? did they have military backgrounds? A lot of them did. In mm -hmm. fact, uh, when I first started, I would say more than half the staff were retired military from Mountain Home Air Force Base. Mm. So that was pretty helpful to have older staff that had been around the block a time or two and, you know, not just fresh right out of high school. That'd be pretty <laughs> difficult. It's, it's, uh, it's helpful to have a lot of life experience before yeah. you work at the prison. And I bet that training that you had in the military probably helped translate. Uh, it was helpful. What sort of training did you receive? When I first started, um, there wasn't any academy. That was that oh. came along down the road back in 1983. They started the academy. So when I started, it was uh, you work with an experienced officer, you know, for a few days to you got the basic understanding of where things were and how to use the keys and and what things were supposed to happen at what particular times. It doesn't take too long. 
yeah, so just kind of job shadowing at yes. at a prison. That's yes. that's pretty interesting. <laughs> Can you describe the atmosphere at the Idaho Department of Corrections in seventy nine AD? Like, what what did it f- kind of feel like to be there at that time? Was there a lot of change happening? Were there any uh, new programs starting or ending or anything like that going on? They had just moved to that prison, the new prison, in nineteen seventy three. So it was still pretty new as far as prisons go because usually a prison location and facilities you don't move out of them very often yeah more common is for an expansion you just build on and build more buildings and more housing units Mm -hmm. as you need them and unfortunately the department of corrections is a growth industry it just seems like it just never ends and it'd be nice to go the other way Work yourself out of a job, a person comes in, serves their time, decides, you know, I don't want to spend my life in prison and make some changes, some personal changes in their life and never come back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's a few that are like that. Yeah. You know, they do learn their lesson and don't come back. But most people have heard the term institutionalized. And basically a short definition of that is a person that's in a controlled environment for an extended period of time gets acclimated to that environment. And then to move them out of that environment into a different environment, like back on the street where you have to decide everything for yourself now, what to wear, what to eat, when to eat, and all these decisions. And unfortunately, it overwhelms people. But that issue has been addressed and people have an idea when they're going to get out of prison, you know, when their sentence is up or if they go before the parole board and they get a parole date, they have to have a plan. A plan is submitted, you know, a place of employment, a place to live. And then the parole board takes a look at it and makes the determination, well, this is feasible or this is not feasible and make their decisions accordingly. So it's not like we just throw them out to the wolves <laughs> when they're done with their time in prison. But still, a lot of people find it really difficult, you know, to find and maintain employment. And life is just so fast. You know, we've become so technological just in the last 20, 25 years from what it was. And, yeah. and when you're in prison, you don't have a sense of that. You know, you see it on TV, and, and but most of the time you're just eating and sleeping, eating and sleeping, and and uh, there are there are jobs in the prison for inmates and stuff, but it's not comparable to what you find on the street, of course. Yeah. So you you saw these different you know jobs and facilities over the 38 year career. Like yes. what what were some that you saw ex- as extremely beneficial? Well. Correctional Industries, that's a name for job training in like in woodwork, uh, metalwork, and things like that. And there's a pretty big building out there where they do woodwork and uh, build furniture and stuff and train people to do that. Then the same thing with the metal shop. And of course, the prison is famous for making license plates, yeah, which yeah. is kind of fun to watch. Yeah. You know? That all started here, too, at this old institute. Yeah, I actually got to tour Correctional Industries and saw their equipment for the license plates. And yes. it was like, wow, they've they've come so far from what they were doing here. It's, a, it's 
incredible that they're still doing that too. Once I'd been there a while, the inmates would say, hey, Mr. May, we can make you a nice personalized plate. You name it and we'll put it on there. <laughs> and I said, well, thanks for the offer, but I'll have to respectfully decline because that's a conflict of interest. Yeah. You know, can't accept gifts, you know. But uh, it was kind of flattering yeah, and kind of fun. They'd get a list of personalized plates and they'd set it up and put them on the plates and then uh, issue them back to the Department of Transportation, you know, to be picked up by whoever ordered that plate for their vehicle. Yeah. It was kind of fun. <laughs> so, yeah, when, you know, they'd make a lot of plates during a day. It was, mm-hmm. took quite a few people to get that thing running during a day. It was kind of interesting to watch. Yeah. Uh, during some of the riots here, like in 52, they they burned the what we call the t-shirt or multi-purpose room and they destroyed all that license plate equipment and so all these newspaper articles it's talking about the right and everything else but then they're also talking about like also we're going to be a, at least a month behind on all the license plates so registration is going to be extended out it's kind of this interesting facet that it really put everything to a halt i've always been amazed anthony in life how even though it's not often obvious how connected everything is, you know, even including prisons and correctional facilities. We're just part of the big picture. Absolutely. Now, you were kind of talking about your relationship with the prisoners, that they wanted to make you a personalized license plate. What was your relationship? Did you have pretty close relationships with any prisoners, or or were you pretty good about being separate and and not really chit-chatting with people? I'm a chit-chatter by nature. Uh That's part of... (laughs) being born and raised in New York. You just talk to everybody. Everybody is just part of the deal. Yeah. And uh, and it varies from staff member to staff member, their comfort level, mm. what they're comfortable doing. And, of course, you're there to do a job. You're to make sure that the inmates follow the rules and regulations and, of course, don't escape. Mm-hmm. Very important. <laughs> So you're always on the lookout for information. Well, is somebody hatching an escape plan, you know? And uh, if you come across information like that, of course, you take the appropriate steps to prevent that from happening. And at ISCI, all around the perimeter, there's guard towers, armed guard towers with weapons that would shoot an inmate trying to escape. You know, that's quite a major deterrent. Because yeah. nobody wants to get shot. Uh, no. <laughs> oh, jeez. So you start in September of 79? Yes. Can you walk us through what led up to July of 1980? Did you see any warning signs there early in your career as, as things were propelling into a major riot in July of 1980? I would say in hindsight, yes. But as it was happening, No. It was just uh, July 23rd, 1980. I'd been there less than a year, and I was working day shift, and I was working as the officer of Unit 13, and there was a variety of units out at ISCI. And Unit 13 was primarily composed of inmates that worked in correctional industries. Mm-hmm. So during a day, they were mostly gone. You know, like I'd come on duty at 6.30 in the morning, and a few minutes later, I'd release the vast majority of the inmates in that unit to go to breakfast, and then they went straight from breakfast to work. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they'd take a break for lunch and then go back to work for the afternoon and then 
after I left at 2.30, the day shift was 6.30 to 2.30, they'd be released uh, for recall at uh, around 4. And so the inmates would go back to their housing units to be counted. Mm-hmm. And there's a variety of counts at different times throughout the course of a 24-hour day to make sure everybody's still there. Mm, important. So it just, <laughs> it becomes uh, a routine. You just know that when you go to work, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And uh, and most days, 99 out of 100, I would say, go that way. Nothing really unusual happens. Everybody eats their breakfast, they go to work, they eat their lunch, they go back to the unit. And then in the evening, they can stay in their cells, watch TV or play cards, or they can go to the recreation area, to the gym or the outside ball field. Mm -hmm. And then there's a chapel where they have various religious activities all throughout the week. And then there's a library where you can go and look at magazines and books and you can check them out. It's like a specific sort of society yeah you know a world within a world it's kind of i always call it just like a a city behind walls exactly everything that you need everything that's required for a city it's all there yeah but it's so confined and yeah Yeah. but that day uh july 23rd i had started in september so i was there less than a year when this all happened and i started originally at the idaho security medical facility which was an adjacent facility next to the main prison, ISCI. ISMF, as it was called, had four units in it. One unit was for mental health. One unit was for protective custody, inmates that were in fear of physical assault Mm -hmm. from other inmates for a variety of reasons. And another unit was the prison's reception and diagnostic unit at that time. That's where all the incoming inmates from the county jails from the 44 counties in Idaho would start out. Mm-hmm. They'd be there for about a week, You'd get a physical, and do some basic testing. And staff would go through your file, look at your crime, your background, how you were raised, and and then try to match up a cell assignment. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's a pretty interesting process. You know, it's a little bit trial and error because. You put two people together, you don't know how they're going to get along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's uh, the luck of the draw a lot of times. You know, you get somebody from Coeur d'Alene with a guy from Twin Falls and, and you know, hope that they can, you know, coexist. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you can't, then we address that. And people move around all the time. They, You just find your place, mm-hmm. I guess, is the best way to put it. I did that for the first six months. And at that time, probation was six months. So I started on swing shift, worked swing shift for four months. And then uh, in January of 1980, there was a person on graveyard shift that wanted to move to swing shift. And so since I was the new person, you know, I was asked to switch. And I said, okay. And so I worked graveyard for two months, which was pretty challenging because I'd never worked graveyard. Oh, yeah. And I had a year and a half old. Um, at home and of course when I come home he'd be up and hey dad let's go play and let's just have the time of our lives and sorry I gotta sleep you know so after two months of that I finished my probation I went over to the main yard and made an appointment with the warden and the warden at that time was a man named Ed Dermott Mm -hmm. a guy twice as old as me I was 25 at the time and he was in his 
40s or 50s. And I said, sir, this is the deal. I've got a year and a half old son, and I'd love to transfer over here and get on day shift if you can find a place for me. Yeah. He says, yeah, I believe we can do that. So I transferred over, and um, they had a position which was called holiday comp time relief, and now it's entirely different. But in that time, it was kind of interesting, the staffing pattern at the prison. Mm -hmm. The staff was split up into two groups, one through four and five through eight. So in essence, it was a great equalizer so that everybody, staff, had every other weekend off. Mm -hmm. So one weekend, one through four was working and five through eight was off. And then the next weekend, five through eight would be working the weekend and one through four would be off. It was a great system. Yeah. Yeah, but you still got your 160 hours over four weeks. But you'd have, like, you'd work seven or eight, nine days in a row sometimes to mm -hmm. cover your weekend. But then you'd have, like, a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday off, or Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday mm -hmm. off, or Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday off. So it was pretty neat. You'd have a pretty good long weekend. Yeah. So, you know, I just fit right into that. And in the spring of 1980, they were building Unit 13, which is a new unit. And the department decided to have an officer assigned just to that unit while they were constructing that unit uh -huh. so that there was at least one person that knew every nook and cranny in that building. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was there every day. And uh, his name was Mr. Lewis, and he was a retired Air Force guy, again, a guy twice my age. Uh -huh. So eventually they opened up the unit, I think it was in May of 1980. The contractors had told the department that the way that this unit was constructed was a riot-proof unit. You know, nobody could get in. Yeah. You know, and but we found out that that was not true, <laughs> unfortunately, because they got in. But we'll get to that. <laughs> so anyways, Mr. Lewis had gone like about a year without a vacation. So my position was I was going to work in that unit while he was on vacation. So I spent a couple days with him, getting used to the unit. He showed me around, told me everything he could think of. And and I didn't have any idea that there was a lot that I didn't know and needed to ask <laughs> in hindsight. But it seemed like, you know, pretty normal. Everybody, it's just a routine. Mm -hmm. Everything's a routine until one day it's not, when there's disruption. So it was my second or third day in the unit. The shift lieutenant, decided that we needed to do a search of Unit 9. So he assembled a bunch of officers, and they did a search of Unit 9 cell by cell by cell looking for contraband. It's just mm -hmm. something periodically you do. Yeah. You just get a bunch of people and just hit it. You yeah. know, just do a major search looking for weapons, drugs, anything that's contraband. Mm -hmm. And bartering is a common issue in prison where people trade things for favors, for food. But every inmate's property has their name and number on it. So mm -hmm. if it's not where it's supposed to be, we know something's up. Yeah. You know, so they just confiscate it. So they took a break for lunch and they came up through the yard with like three or four big laundry carts full of contraband up to the admin building. Oh, as simultaneously the inmates were being released from Correctional Industries to go to lunch in Pendine, which is the prison's dining facility. Mm -hmm. And so these inmates come and 
they see these officers coming up through the yard with their stuff and they freaked out. Yeah. <laughs> it was just yeah. spontaneous. Oh my they started breaking out the windows in Pendine. And so the officer was in there, called up to control, who got a hold of the shift lieutenant and told the officers to evacuate because there's like 200 inmates in there and like two or three, four officers. So it was, a, you know, for their safety, they just took their keys and went up to the admin building and the inmates didn't stop them. And then the process began of evacuating all the staff because this thing spread quickly. They went from Pendine to the gym and started breaking out windows there. And so they got the officers evacuated from medical, from correctional industries, mm -hmm. from the eating facility and all the housing units, except for Unit 11 and Unit 13. And because my unit was so new, my phone number wasn't on the roster. Oh, so no. I was just forgotten oh, wow. because the because it was just chaos, as you can imagine, in the control center. The riot began at 12:30, following what inmates called a bad shakedown of cell block nine. Prison officials say there was nothing unusual about the search, but nonetheless, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. After learning the insurrection had begun, officials said only one man had not escaped from the yard. Corrections officer Leonard Orr was in the custody of rioting inmates. All others, said Correction Director C.W. Crowell and Acting Warden L.D. Smith, had made their way out during the first hectic minutes. A committee was to be set up to investigate specific grievances and come up with solutions. The specifics of those grievances were not yet fully known. That was to happen when two members of the media were requested to enter the yard. So my first inkling that something was amiss was a group of inmates started banging on the front door of Unit 13. And I had an office. I had a view of the front door. Mm -hmm. And I had a speaker box. So I could speak to the inmates on the speaker. And they, they said, let us in, let us in. You know, we don't want to participate in a riot. And I go, riot? What riot? Oh, <laughs> so I learned God. from the inmates. Yeah, <gasps> And so they were beating on the door trying to get in. And so I thought, well, I better find out what's going on here. So I picked up the phone. <laughs> And I called control and said, uh, this is Officer May in Unit 13. I got a bunch of inmates at the front door seeking entrance to the unit, saying they don't want to participate in a riot. He says, oh, yeah, <laughs> you're down there. So, well, don't let them in. You know, just just stay in the office. It's a riot-proof building. You're safe, you know. Oh, so just stay in the office. I said, okay. And one little side note. All the units on the yard had roof access until they didn't oh. because uh, a year or two previously an inmate had escaped by going out on the roof of unit 11 jumped off the building on graveyard shift and ran to downtown boise and they caught him a couple days later wow but the department's solution for that was well we're not going to have any more inmates escape that way we'll just weld these babies shut but now they're open <laughs> and yeah. the the configuration of the prison has changed dramatically mm -hmm. because of the riot. They said, oh, you know, we have no visibility here, so they build another tower yeah. right in the middle of the yard. So mm -hmm. if an officer gets up on the roof, he's got armed coverage to protect him. If the inmates go up on the roof chasing after him, you know, yeah. they could be shot easily. It's a pretty easy shot. But that was not in existence at the time because that never happened. And prison is like any other business. Mm -hmm. You respond and you react to situations that get out of hand, mm -hmm. 
and you take the proper steps to correct the situation of a preventative nature and a reactionary nature too. So you're prepared and yeah. make preparations. And that's an ongoing process, right. you know, in a prison. Yeah. So anyways, I was aware that I could not get out on the roof because I was welded shut. <laughs> so I'm in that building and uh, I feel pretty secure. I mean, I, I don't have a sense of what really what's going on. Mm-hmm. A few minutes later, the con- I, I talked to the inmates on a speaker box. I said, just wait here. You know, I'm getting clarification and some guidance as how to proceed. And uh, I said, well, hurry up, you know, Uh (laughs) speed things up. Yeah, yeah. So a couple minutes later, I talked to the shift lieutenant and uh, the shift commander, and he asked me how many inmates were out there, and I just gave him an estimate. He says, okay, this is what we're going to do. You're going to stay in the office. You're going to let them in electronically and tell them to proceed to go down on this first tier on their left, on your right, and to stay on the tier and don't make any trouble. Uh I said, okay. So I did that, let 15, 20 inmates in and put them on a tier. Some of them were unit 13 inmates, some of them weren't. Uh So then a few minutes later, the shift lieutenant calls me back again and says, well, how are they doing? I said, oh, they're doing fine. They're just sitting there, you know, watching TV. They're not making any trouble. In the meantime, the rest of the prison is just going crazy nuts. You got three or 400 inmates just breaking and wrecking everything. Yeah. But they didn't come to Unit 13 right away. They went other places. Uh-huh. It turns out that the Unit 11 officer didn't get out. So he was taken hostage right off. Oh. And they took his keys, and that became like a command center for the inmates, Unit 11. They had an officer. They had keys. And so they were keeping other inmates out that would make trouble. It was a very controlled environment. Yeah. It was kind of interesting. but And then there was me. I was still in Unit 13. <laughs> so the shift commander calls me up and says, okay, this is what I want you to do. Every 15 minutes, I want you to call control and give an update on your status in your unit. I said, okay, I can do that. So starting at, uh, and this happened a little after 11. Uh-huh. So I think my first phone call was like 11.45. So I called control and said, ah, Unit 13 is quiet. Everything's fine. So it's okay. And I'd get periodic updates from them. And the warden wasn't on site because he was recovering from surgery. He had some abdominal surgery. So the deputy warden was the acting warden. And the director was on his way. So the director showed up. And he took over the running and the response mm-hmm. you know, to the riot. So 12 o'clock comes, I call. 12.15, 12.30. 12.45, 1 o'clock, 1.15. Mind you, this thing started a little after 11. Two yeah. hours later, I'm still in there, and nothing's happening in the unit. It's like I'm just invisible. Yeah. The whole unit's invisible. It's, yeah. it's, it's kind of hard in retrospect <laughs> how to figure, why is this? Yeah. You know? But I just went with it. So 1.30, 1.45, 2 o'clock. And after the 2 o'clock call, it dawned on me. I'm not going to get relieved at 2.30. <laughs> oh. My wife's going to freak out. She's going to wonder, where are you? So I called up to the switchboard because there's no direct phone call within mm-hmm. the prison in case the in- so the inmates don't have access to the telephones. Yeah. So you have to go through a switchboard and get an outside line and dial. You have to verify your identity mm-hmm. to get access to an outside line. 
So I called my wife. She's at my apartment. I said, honey, they're having trouble at a different part of the prison. Where I'm at, you know, I'm safe. But, you know, I just really undersold it. Yeah. I just said, yeah. <laughs> I said, uh, I'm not going to get relieved at the normal time. And, and I don't know when I'll be relieved, but I'll give you a call. She goes, oh, okay, that's fine, you know. That's not like the first time that that, it, that had ever happened, you yeah. know, because I'd worked my share of overtime and mm-hmm. stuff. So, so I hung up the phone and, and 215, 2.30, 2.45, 3.15. And every once in a while when I talked to the control officer, they said, yeah, they're negotiating with the inmates. There's an inmate negotiating committee. Uh-huh. And they told me that the Unit 11 officer was hostage. Yeah. But the the he that he and I were the only two staff members left in the prison. Everybody else had been evacuated. Mm-hmm. And by that time, swing shift had showed up. So there was a whole bunch of officers just hanging out in the admin building. Yeah. And while the riots going on. And so after the three thirty call, I get a call from the shift commander and he tells me we're going to get you out of this building. And there was a button on my thing for outside exits. So uh-huh. it was like for each tier. There was eight tiers and there was eight of these buttons. Yeah. And they told me which tier I was going to go out of. And they said, when they're in position, we'll call you on the phone. You hit the button, let them in. You grab your keys, go to the front door of the tier and meet them in the middle and leave with them. And they asked me which tier to my knowledge, had the least number of inmates in it to uh-huh. try to maximize the effectiveness and the safety of the plan because they don't want to hurt anybody and I don't want to get hurt. So we, we decided on a tier. So I'm getting geared up to do this. You know, I'm thinking, okay, i got to grab the keys, got to lock the door, got to open up that tier door, meet the rescue squad, and leave with them out the back door and around the back of the prison uh-huh. and, you know, to safety. So I was pretty happy about that that seemed like a workable plan and then a couple minutes later the shift commander called me back and said the director has canceled that plan because he's thinking that if they get me out of there that would jeopardize the safety of the other hostage and they don't even know i'm in there like the vast majority of the inmates Mm -hmm. so they considered all the options and they said riot proof building you're just safe where you're at just stay there so I said, oh, okay. <laughs> a little before four, a whole herd of inmates came to the front door of Unit 13. And you got to picture this, Anthony. It's unbelievable. It's like 105 degrees that day. And there was no air conditioning in the old housing units. Everybody's outside. It's hot. They've been at this for almost five hours mm-hmm. by now. Yeah. And they're just hot and bothered. They procured some tools out of correctional industries because correctional industries has all kinds of tools crowbars and all that stuff yeah heavy accountability but nobody's minding the store they just help themselves and they just pried the door open took them a while but they got it open and uh they got on the tiers pried those doors and uh the inmates said yeah there's an officer in there so then they were trying to get me so i had two ways to go i could go downstairs in the building or upstairs Uh so i got on the phone and said i'm going downstairs and uh I'm going to hide the best I can, and and uh, they're coming in, and 
I thought I was dead, Anthony, honestly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, there, I, you know, because I'm, I'm the personification of authority. You're right, yeah. <laughs> and now the tables have turned, you know. So I run downstairs, and I lock myself in this closet. And you'd have to see the building. to, But there was a closet at the bottom of the stairs that had, like, heating vents and the stuff for the heating and all that stuff. Okay, yeah. And I locked both doors. And there was really no place to hide. Everything is just bare walls, you know, basically. I'm thinking, you know, today might be the day that I meet my maker. You know, I just, my mind is racing, trying to think of a way to prevent that from happening. And nothing came to mind. I just was out of options. And so a bunch of the inmates went upstairs and a bunch of them went downstairs. And then they broke through the door where I was. They knew I was in there somewhere in the building, mm-hmm. but they come rushing in, and there I was. You know, and I'm not Bruce Lee, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to take out 20 guys, you know, that'd be suicide. And so I had enough sense to, to pull my badge off, and I put it inside my pants pocket, and I was trying to be invisible. Yeah. I mean, I had no training. Like oh. now we have extensive training in this, but that time, street sense you know being born and raised in new york i just like you know (laughs) i want to be cooperative and invisible as best as i can you know Wow. and if i'm called upon to speak i i've got to speak up for myself and explain to them that i'm an asset that what's in it for them that it's better for them (laughs) if i remain alive and safe you know so i kind of had a little impromptu talk, but I never got a chance to say it. Yeah. <laughs> it all happened so fast. They come charging in. They grab me by both arms and uh, took me up the stairs back into the office. And there was a discussion among the inmates as to what to do with me. And they finally decided, all right, we'll just take him down to U11 where the other hostage is. So I was just marched across the yard about... You know, four or five inmates holding my arms like there was no getting away. Yeah. I'm just marched down to Unit 11, and the inmates have the key, and they let me in. And just three or four minutes before I got there, literally, two reporters from Channel 2 News had just been let in to Unit 11 to verify the safety of the other officer. And... The reporters were Bob Loy, who was an anchor man for Channel Two News CBS, and Mike Montgomery, who was a cameraman for uh-huh. Channel Two News. And I don't know how they picked him. I don't know if they drew names out of the hat because this is their big moment. I mean, just yeah. think of it: you're a reporter, you're alive. Right. There's a riot, hostages. This is my ticket to the big time. <laughs> so they were pretty excited. I'm sure they had no shortage yeah. of volunteers uh-huh. to cover the story. Surrounded by inmates protecting us from prisoners caught up in the psychology of insurrection, we were led to an office in Unit 11 where the hostage had been captured. Our job was to transmit a list of grievances to corrections officials, items which the Citizens Committee was to investigate. But a second, more immediate task was at hand, determine the condition of the hostage. As we had already seen, July 23rd was to be a day of surprises. What we found in that hot, smoky cell block did nothing to alter that. Despite statements from corrections officials to the contrary, Leonard Orr was not the only hostage. 
Corrections Officer Calvin May from A House had just been captured. So I get in there and Bob Loy sticks a microphone in my face, kind of <laughs> like this thing. And he says, who are you? I said, where'd you come from? And he asked me like three or four questions at the same time and not giving me a chance to talk. Yeah. So I figured, well, I'll just wait till he stops talking and then I'll try to answer his questions. And so I said, well, I'm an officer who was in Unit 13. He said, have you been harmed? I said, no, I haven't been harmed. He said, well, what do you think about this? And I said, I don't know. You know, I just, I wasn't my place to say. So I just said, I don't know. Yeah. So they took me into this day room. And a day room is a facility where it has a TV set. And, the, and Unit 11 had three tiers. Mm -hmm. So I was put on one of the tiers in Unit 11 where they'd put card tables together. And the other officer was sitting at the table. So they sat me down at the table by the other officer. So now we're live on TV, Channel 2 is interviewing us. Yeah. You know, they're filming. <laughs> it's so the darndest thing. Wild. Yeah. So um, they interview us, and the, the inmates say, okay, that's enough. You can verify it. They're safe. We're going to take them down on a tier where they'll be protected, and, and inmates will be around them. And then they were going to state their grievances to Channel 2 News, uh -huh. to Bob Loy and Mike, Mike Montgomery, and that would be passed along to the director and the powers that be. So they put us in cell 67 on C tier of Unit 11, an inmate cell. And so the roles were reversed. We were the inmates, and they had the keys. Wow. <laughs> and uh, they were feeling pretty confident about that. You mm -hmm. know, like it's somewhat understandable to suddenly go from a position of no power to a position of having lots of power, yeah. you know and to have our lives in their very hands, you know. Orr and May were quickly taken back to their cell, number 67 in Unit 11. Reports filtered out later that the hostages were being moved around the compound to confuse and thwart any rescue attempts. But it was cell 67 where they remained through their ordeal. Recognizing the importance of a favorable report on the treatment of the hostages, the inmates made certain we were satisfied with their condition. But once they were removed, it was time for the prisoners to talk. In the context of prevailing circumstances, one streetwise, level-headed inmate acted as the group's spokesman. We're completely dissatisfied with the administration and the fact that treatment is nil. It's non-existent in here. There is absolutely no treatment for inmates. The only treatment you can even consider treatment is the counselors, and they're never even here. There's five or six of them for everybody. They got about 100, 150 people on their caseload. All the inmates in here felt that their back was up against the wall. They were treated like they were in Nazi Germany or something. Now everybody in here knows that they're in prison. Their prisoner is supposed to have some rights. And he's supposed to be allowed to rehabilitate himself in a manner that he can get outside and function again. There's no way. I don't even think, what do they give you for gate money here when you leave? Fifteen bucks. That's how much money you got. That's not even enough money to buy a gun. You got to beat somebody up to get a gun. So, I mean, and that's about the only thing that you're trained for. And here's to go out there and get another gun. The public should be concerned because these guys have to come back out there. There's very few of these people that won't get out. Most of them will get out and get back on the streets. So the public should be aware of that. Once outside the cell block, we were directed toward the gate. Along the way, inmates feeling victorious over the first phase of their dealings with those on the outside began demonstrating their elation, a feeling of power, and a taste of freedom. 
So I'm sitting there in the cell and I have a Bible that I got when I was uh, in the army. Uh -huh. And I carried it with me every day when I worked at the prison. And I'm just sitting there on the bed, the other officer's sitting on the other bed, and inside my mind was the idea, get that Bible out and uh, read the Bible in front yeah. of everybody. So I just went with it, you know? So I got the Bible out and I was born and raised a Christian. Mm -hmm. My parents took me to church and I grew up in the church and I've been a Christian my whole life, mm -hmm. still am. And the time between the three years I was in the army and then the two years when I went back in, I went to Bible school for two years in uh, Ohio. Studied the Bible in the original Greek, in the original Hebrew, and read the Bible through numerous times in the two years. So I knew it frontwards and backwards. Mm -hmm. Probably one of the few people on the planet right. <laughs> that's actually oh devoted two years gosh. of their life to Bible study. Yeah. You know, so, and it wasn't like I did the training to become a pastor of a church or anything like that or a missionary or just, I just, um, at that time in my life, I just wanted to study the Bible. So yeah. I went to a place where you could do that. Uh -huh. And there's lots of scriptures in the Bible that talk about various desperate circumstances that people find themselves in. Mm -hmm. And the thought came to my mind, go to the first chapter of the book of Mark, which is the second book of the New Testament. So I just started reading and the inmates were watching me and they said, the Bible, the Bible's full of lies. And I just ignored them. Uh -huh. And I said, and the church is full of hypocrites. Right. Yeah. I said, well, that's true. We're all hypocrites. We all say one thing and do another. Uh -huh. We're all guilty of that. <laughs> And the last time I checked, none of us can walk on water. <laughs> so I'm in that club too. But I believe, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and so I just ignored him and kept reading. I got down to verse 14 of the first chapter of Mark. It says, after that John was put in prison, and that word prison just kind of leaped off the page, you know, as you can imagine. Yes. Jesus came in to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Two verses, 14 yeah. and 15. And the second, Anthony, I read those verses, I just felt a great sense of inner peace. Yeah. That this was going to turn out okay and that I'd be all right. It was a spiritual experience. Uh -huh. that's, that's the best way I can describe it. But it was real. It was genuine. Yeah. Just as sure as I'm sitting here and touching this table. Yeah. Changed my whole perspective on everything. Because I had the assurance that even though the circumstances had not changed, everything was still the same. It's 105 degrees. Yeah. Inmates are just going crazy nuts. And I'm the person that's the representation of authority. Oh so <clears throat> anyways, uh, the reporters leave. And unbeknownst to us, because we're in a different part mm -hmm. of the building, there was uh, three primary inmate negotiators, Jody Kitchen, Dave Stewart, and Scott Bourne. Mm. So they came down to the cell to check on us after the reporters leave before they went back up to the front to talk on one side of the fence face-to-face -face with the director and the prison officials on the other side. It was mm -hmm. pretty primitive, but that's how they did it. And we were actually in Jody Kitchen's cell in that unit. That was his cell that they put us in. He says, uh, hey, how are you guys doing? You know, he's just real gruff and stuff and uh -huh. all hyped up. And, 
And and I said, yeah, we're doing okay. And so, well, you guys hungry? You know, we can get some food down here from Pendine and feed you. And I said, uh, yeah, food's good. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're going to offer, you know. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth, right? <laughs> so, um, so a few minutes later, they brought down some food. And uh, so we're just eating. Around 5 o'clock, this was like, Oh, a little after four or, or closer to 4.30. So they left and then they came back. And what the reason they came back was they wanted to see themselves on the five o'clock news <laughs> on channel two. So they brought in the biggest TV they could find in the unit, brought it in. And what had happened a little before four, I don't know how they did it. Technology even then back in 1980, they got that feed down to channel two news and there's the other officer and I live on Channel 2 News at 5. Wow. wow. It was just so surreal to see myself on TV. <laughs> just you know, While still in this situation. While still like, in the situation, oh yeah. I mean, it was just so fast, so yeah. sudden, so intimate, you mm -hmm. know. It was just so we watch ourselves, and, and uh, there was no commentary. They were just reporting the story. They said, yeah, state police are on site. And, and uh, lieutenant governor's on site because the governor John Evans was out of town, mm -hmm. and so when the when the governor's out of town, lieutenant governor assumes the duty of governor, and it was Phil Bad at the time, so he was on site somewhere. So negotiations were ongoing, and then they had footage of inmates breaking windows and stuff that they taken from behind the fences, mm -hmm. and it was pretty dramatic, and they set fires. Yeah. So there was fires going on, and it's still really hot and stuff. So they gave the story, I don't know, three or four minutes, which is pretty long time mm -hmm. for one story on a network news broadcast. And uh, they had, and this is Bob Loy reporting from, for Channel 2 News. So then the inmates left again. Then they came back. It was uh, probably about half an hour, something like that. And they decided they were going to let us call our wives and let them know that we we're okay. Well, wouldn't you know it, my wife and I didn't have a TV, so oh. she still had no idea. The prison never called her because oh it wasn't on the gosh. protocol and nobody thought to do it. Yeah. And so they bring me out first, and so they just walk beside me. We walk into the office, and they pick up the phone and hand it to me. So I'm with a switchboard. And the switchboard operator that day was a lady named Judy Ogawa. Mm -hmm. And I said, Judy, this is Calvin Maine. And like a good officer, she tried to ask me questions and get information to pass along. She goes, are you okay? And I go, yes. Are you surrounded by inmates? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was hoping she asked yes or no questions, you know. Uh -huh. And uh, and so the inmates figured out pretty quick what was going on. So they snatched the phone from me and says, Listen, just give the guy an outside line so he can call his wife and tell her he's okay. And they hand the phone back to me. And, and so I dial, you know, and get my wife. And, honey, I've got some news for you. And she goes, oh, what? You're on your way? Well, not exactly. <laughs> I said, there's been a disturbance here at the prison. And I've been taken captive. But the inmates are letting me call you to let you know that I haven't been harmed, that I'm safe. And they're in the process 
of negotiations, mm-hmm. you know, letting their grievances known to the administration with a goal in mind, hopefully, of peaceful resolution. And uh, she goes, what? You know, she's <laughs> just, you know, reacting. And I, I couldn't say it any more calmer than that because yeah. the inmates are listening on every word, and they're just enjoying the heck out of this. I mean, it was great entertainment for them. I said, well, I have to go now. So this is a quick call, and uh, they're going to let the other officer call his wife. So I can't, you know, stay on the phone. But uh, as soon as I can call you, I will. Mm-hmm. So I said, love you. You know, give uh, my son Daniel a hug and, and stay there. <laughs> Don't go anywhere yeah. so that I can contact you so I know where you are. You know, cancel that trip to the grocery store. This was before cell phones. You know, we didn't have cell phones. We just had the basic landline. She says, okay. So I hung up, and they brought me back down to the cell, and they brought the other officer up. And he called his wife. Well, that was a little more complicated because his wife was a nurse working swing shift at St. Al's in Boise, and he worked the day shift. So before he got home from work, she'd already left for work. So, again, same thing. She didn't know. So... So he called, and uh, she's taking care of patients, you know, medicine, doing nursing stuff. So they get her to the nursing station and get her on the phone, and and he tells her the same information. Honey, I'm still at the prison, and I've been taken captive. And what? You know, and he told me her reaction. I told him (laughs) my wife's reaction. So we're both young married guys, you know. Yeah. They don't have any kids. So he tells her the same thing. Just stay there. Don't leave so we know where you are so the prison can contact you if need be. And so it was kind of, you know, I found out afterwards, it was kind of confusing for them at St. Al's because, you know, she's obviously too upset to go back to work. Yeah. But they don't want to leave her by herself. And But all the nurses have to do their work plus her work. But they got it figured out. And so they had one of the chaplain or the hospital staff stay with her and, so then they all leave again, the negotiators, mm-hmm. and they go back up and they talk. And so then a little after eight, deja vu. They come down to the cell, Jody Kishin, Scott Bourne, Dave Stewart. How you guys doing? Oh, we're okay. You're hungry? Nah, we're full. We're fine. So we're going to let you call your wives again. Said so, so they brought me out first again, just a repeat. So yeah. I call my wife, and, and uh, she'd gotten a hold of the pastor of our church, and he'd come over, him and his wife, oh. to stay with my wife so she wasn't alone. And But the prison had never contacted her for whatever reason. They just didn't. So she wasn't by herself, and my son was fine. And I said, I'm fine, and and I don't know how long this is going to take. I don't know the end result. Yeah. But I'm being treated, you know, humanely, and so far so good. Yeah. So they took me back down the cell, brought the other officer back up. He called his wife, same thing. She's fine. He's fine. Back down. And they leave again. So a little before 10, it starts to get dark outside. The sun's going down. We're on July time, so the sun sets late. They come back down to watch themselves on the 10 o'clock news. Now, so we got a deja vu of what happened at 5. We're going to repeat it at 10. <laughs> See what the wow. deal is. And by this time, I mean, it's, they've got some stunning footage. Yeah. Fires, you know, uh-huh. all throughout correctional industries because there's tons of wood. Oh, it all yeah. burns, man. They just burn that, just fires everywhere and hooting and hollering, just people running around like crazy. They 
interviewed some of the staff on camera and said negotiations are going on, you know, we're hoping for the best. Pretty generic. Yeah. And negotiations are ongoing. What were their grievances that they were negotiating for? Kind of typical for um, prisons. More rehabilitation opportunities. Mm -hmm. Job training, more access to counseling, uh, more mental health staff, more food, better food. Look at the parole board. Yeah. Because, you know, that's... That's kind of like the carrot that's dangled in front of inmates. If you don't make trouble here, yeah. do what you're supposed to, then you get out. Mm-hmm. But if you make trouble, then that makes it harder for them in good conscience to let you out. It's a way to maintain order in the prison. People wanting to get out and return to their families before their sentence is up. Parole and probation is just paramount. To running a prison you just have to be on top of it and if you're not going to let a person out you have to explain in such a way this is why we're not letting you out but if you do x y and z your chances for favorable consideration increase dramatically and it's really hard when there's an expectation when you go for the parole board that you're going to get a date and get out and yeah. it doesn't happen, it creates issues. And so we're aware of that. And, you know, we take steps to closer supervision mm-hmm. and talking to the person, letting him vent, yeah. explain, talk, and get it off his chest. So, and that's true in every prison in the country. Every prison, you know, addresses that. Mm-hmm. issues with the parole board and getting out. So anyways, they watch the 10 o'clock news and they go back up to negotiate. And then an agreement is struck around 10.30 after the news and they're talking. And the agreement was this. They're going to release the both of us in exchange for the governor committee to be put together to investigate and make recommendations addressing the inmates' concerns. So, but between the time that that agreement was struck and the inmates came down to get us and escort us back up through the yard, back up to the admin building, which was in the front of the prison, a number of inmates were not in agreement with that plan. They didn't trust the the administration. They didn't trust the plan. And they tried to talk them into it the inmate negotiators. So there's a big argument among the inmates among themselves. They couldn't agree among themselves. So they finally agreed that they would release one of us and keep the other. So they just didn't... The inmates were afraid that if they released both of us at the same time, they'd just come in and stomp everybody, oh, yeah. you know, for better or better to say it, you know, kind of like, okay, now we're back in control again and you guys are going to pay. Yeah. But that wasn't the intent of the administration, but that was their perception, the inmates' perception. Fear the worst. Yeah. So they came down, and they just said, Mr. May, come with us. So I'm thinking, ah, another phone call. But it turns out I went out the front door, and they took me up front, and I was released. And that was pretty exciting. I came through the front gate, and my fellow staff were clapping and cheering. It was one of the most 
epic moments in my life to just <laughs> be finally released after being down there for almost seven hours, you know, and be released. And of course, they took me into the warden's office for a debriefing. They want to know where the inmates were, what they had for weapons, uh-huh. all this stuff. And that didn't take very long. You know, I just told them, I said, well, it's pretty calm down there. And uh, I think the other officer's okay, you know, for the time being. And I said, I would like to go home. <laughs> I've had enough fun for today. <laughs> yeah. So, they, so they, they looked around at each other. Yeah, I guess that's be all right. <laughs> Did the you call st- your wife before you? Yeah, I called my wife. I yeah. said, uh, I said I've been released, and uh, I said I'll be home in about a half an hour. So I get there, and somehow, <clears throat> all the news people found out where I live. So they're all hanging out at our place, and my wife gave me a heads up on that. I said, yeah, Channel Seven, Channel Two, Statesman, Channel Six, and everybody else under the sun. <laughs> They're out there with their trucks and satellite uplinks and all this stuff. They want to interview when you get here. And they told me I can't do any of your interviews. So oh, I said, okay. let me talk to the pastor. So I talked to the pastor on the phone. And I said, please just tell him that I'm safe, that I've been ordered not to give any interviews because this is still an ongoing, ongoing situation. Yeah. You know, I don't have the liberty to do this. Mm-hmm. And just ask them to please leave because they were keeping everybody up. This is, you know, families with young kids yeah. in, a, in an apartment <laughs> complex, you know, and they're they making a ruckus. So so I guess he went out and told them and they left. And uh, so I get home and I walk around to the back door where there's a patio door. And there's my son playing on the floor, playing with uh-huh. some uh, blocks and stuff. So I go in and I pick him up and give him a hug and I give my wife, you know, a hug and a kiss. Talk to the pastor and his wife. I, I said to them, you know, I really appreciate you guys uh, coming here so that um, my wife wouldn't have to be here by herself. Oh, yeah. And I had told the people at the prison when I left, I said, when this thing is resolved, call me. <laughs> Because I'm on adrenaline rush here, and I'm not going to sleep anytime soon. Yeah. And uh, so I want to call, oh, yeah, we will. And, of course, they didn't. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I had to call them. Yeah. And, and I eventually fell asleep. I was I was on a couch in the front room, and I drifted off to sleep. And, and I woke up, and it was like 6 in the morning. So I called out to the prison, talked to them, and they said, yeah, they they had gone in with a tactical team and got the other officer out with the cooperation of some of the inmates, uh-huh. got them out safely, and we're in the process of regaining control of the prison. Oh. So then I said, oh, okay. Jeez. So I took the next day off, and then the day after that, I called back and said, uh, I want to come back to work. And so they put me through the deputy warden, and he says, uh, we're – doing two shifts, two 12-hour shifts, five to five and five to five. Yeah. I said, I want the day shift. <laughs> I said, okay, fine. So I went back to work, and they shifted most of the inmates out out of state because oh. the buildings were uninhabitable. They yeah. sent them to Montana, California, Oregon, wow. Washington, any place they could find a bed uh-huh. until they could get everything restored. 
and it took $2.6 million wow. to fix everything. It'd probably be like way more than that now, but this yeah. was in 1980. And uh, a couple of days later, the governor came back and he went on a tour and he wanted to meet me. Uh-huh. And so I met him and was on a tour with him and said, yeah, this is where I did this and this is where this happened. And, and uh, so I got to meet the governor, John Evans, and that was quite an honor, yeah. you know, quite a privilege to spend some time with him. And, and eventually, after a few months, we just worked 12 on, 12 off. In the spring of 1981, they started bringing inmates back. In that time, they constructed a tower in the middle of the yard, and they did some other changes to the units mm-hmm. to solidify them, make it more riot-proof, yeah. for lack of a better way to put it. And then uh, I just kept working and until I retired. I'm just glad to be speaking to you here because that could have gone so many different ways. Like, I can only imagine the adrenaline rush and, wow, what your family was going through. Were were there any points where you were really like, I don't know if this is going to end well for me? Or or did you feel... When I was first taken. Yeah. That was was the main thing. Yeah. And then once I went to Unit 11 and uh, read the passage in the Bible... Just that that just sense of calm and yeah. peace. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And, you know, in a situation like that, obviously, it's quite volatile and mm-hmm. there's no predictability as to what's going to happen or what's going to transpire. God has used that in a mighty way yeah. in my life. I've spoken to, over the years, many police groups, church groups, and it's a fascinating story. You know, by and large, people are kind of interested in prison stories. <laughs> Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because it's an entire different universe. And then the spiritual aspect of it. And in fact, um, in 2005, we made a video about the riot. Uh-huh. The department got their hands on some of the footage that Channel 2 had filmed. And I narrate through it and made a video to use for training purposes, you know, for the staff. And I got copies, and I took it back to New York, did a presentation at my church uh-huh. back in New York, and uh, showed the video. It's about 13 minutes long. And uh, in fact, you can Google it. If you go to Google on your phone and just say Calvin May, Idaho Department of Corrections, it's on, it's on there, and you can watch it on your phone. I'll link to it in this episode and in our Facebook group. And if you talk to Jeff Ray, which is who's the public information officer for the department, he's probably got copies floating around. Oh, yeah. And he might be able to hook you up. Excellent. And it, 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 it's just a suggestion. You might want to just um, maybe have an area where you can show the video to people that are out here on tour. Yeah. And just, you know, just make it part of the prison tour. Because it's, it's not Absolutely. very long, uh-huh. but it covers everything. Mm-hmm. The governor's on there. It's really well put together. Yeah, and, and you get the you get the full sense of, you know, all of it. <laughs> and I like Jody Kitchen with his long hair. Yeah, and his big mustache. Yeah. Oh, uh, you've seen the film. Yeah, yeah, oh, good, yeah. I've good, watched, good. I actually watched it this morning before you came. Oh, good. I've watched it probably four or five times. Oh, good. I'm the glad. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah it's, it's it's a great video. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it really oh, is. Gosh, a lot of work and time. We filmed all day. Oh, yeah. And to take eight hours of filming yeah. and condense it down to, to 12, 13 minutes. Uh-huh. It's, uh, 
it's really well done. Seeing where you hid, mm-hmm. like going down yeah, that yeah. little circular yes. staircase. Yeah, the, down that, the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> that is yeah. Right. the descent into this little last yeah. place of defense. You know, yeah, that, that exactly. part, like, that yeah. gets me. <laughs> yeah. Did journalists, did the media, did they help or hurt the situation? I felt it was good because, again, they were a means to communicate the inmates' message to the public. Yeah. Like, if they weren't there, this might not even have made the news. Uh It it could have happened in a vacuum. Having media present the inmates' viewpoints and ideas, that seems to me to be one of the purposes of journalism. Just present the facts. Yeah. Present the story. And let the viewers decide, you know, interpret, attach meaning, you know, to it. But, you know, and it's it's kind of dicey yeah. because um, they were in harm's way. Right. You know, to be honest about it. But on the other hand, I think it was productive. I yeah. think it was I think it was helpful in this case. Yeah. I can't speak to other riots because every riot's an individual circumstance and the circumstances are different and the players are different Mm -hmm. but in this case i think it was helpful do you know is it part of the policy to include any journalist in riots nowadays is that a part of what they do is they have an area for media okay because uh and that's part of the public information officer's job okay he is a liaison between the prison administration and the media so in this day and age he would make statements to the press on behalf of the administration. Okay. It would be carefully chosen message. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to spill the beans. <laughs> you're not going to play all your cards yeah. or show your hand. You would just say, yeah. It'd probably be something like negotiations are going on, you know, and we're hopeful to have a peaceful resolution. Yeah. You yeah. know, which is kind of generic, kind of vanilla, yeah. but that's really appropriate uh-huh i think the, that's really yeah. appropriate we see that in in the disturbances here as well yeah yeah that we'll continue to have our discussions with the uh inmate grievance committee but as of right now it is still ongoing and yeah. a point yeah. you mentioned was the training we we uh, a few years after that we started a inmate a negotiation team to deal with inmates if something like this happens and it's a multi it's become a crisis intervention unit. It's yeah. not just for hostage situations. It, it, it encompasses people threatening suicide, threatening violence toward staff or other inmates and all uh-huh. that. And we talk. You know, talking is, is good. And given enough time, it's generally productive and generally works. My observation dealing with inmates over the years it's really beneficial to take time to listen. Everybody wants to be heard. You want to be heard. I want to be heard. Mm -hmm. They want to be heard. And being heard alleviates so many problems. Because you might not be able to solve the problem, but if you can listen with authenticity, it calms a person down you know I'm not going through this just by myself somebody 
knows about this. And it's a, it's a start. It's a beginning. Yeah. yeah, but it's always volatile. You know, I over the years, you know, you just see tons and tons of things. I wanted to tell you a quick story yeah. about when I first started. It was my second night on swing shift, and I was assigned to the mental health unit. And the mental health unit at that time had three tiers. One was women, one that were just in the department, and the women wound up in Orofino. That's uh-huh. where the women's prison was before they built the women's prison years later in Pocatello. And then there was an override tier of riders. That's a person that's generally young, generally their first offense, and the judge maintains jurisdiction over the case. And they're sent to the department for an evaluation of 120 days. And then a report is completed and sent to the judge, and the judge makes the call to let the guy out on probation or he's got to serve a year or two or whatever. And then there was the mental health tier where people are there because they have done some bizarre things. Mm-hmm. Their crimes are bizarre. So anyways, in the evening, from 6 to 7, one tier at a time had access to the day room. And so it was my shift. It was my place to decide. So I said, oh, ladies first. So let the ladies go in there first. And it was a room that had a pool table, a bunch of books and magazines, a card table, a TV set. And so at 7 o'clock, put the ladies back on the tier. From 7 to 8, got the riders out and put them in there. And 8 o'clock, put them back. From 8 to 9, got the mental health unit out, put them in the day room. So at 9 o'clock, the time comes. Their time is over. They have to return to their cells. So they all return to their cells, except for one guy. And this guy was huge. He was like six foot five, 250 pounds, but his brain was fried on drugs. He talked in small sentences and stuff, and he just moved like Frankenstein. Oh, interesting, yeah. <laughs> so, so I walk up to him, and I say, you need to return to your cell. And he just looks at me and doesn't say anything. And I'm thinking, man, how am I going to get this guy back in the cell? It'd take 10 of us to get this guy in there. I mean, it'd take a football team because he's just huge, you know. And nobody had given me a heads up on this, uh-huh. you know, my second. So I get a little closer to him, and I say, I need you to please return to your cell. And he goes, I can't. And so I say, well, why not? Why, pray tell, can you not return to your cell? There's monsters in there. He says to me, and so I've taken aback, you know, I consider that. So I just thought came into my head. I said, show me. Huh. So I grabbed the cue stick. And so we're off down to the cell. <laughs> we're hunting for monsters. Oh. And so he won't go into the cell. And I said, stay right there. Don't move. I'm going to help you out. I'm going to get those monsters. So I go in there and I got that cue stick and I'm getting <laughs> monsters off the ceiling. I'm getting them off the bed. I'm just whacking monsters. His eyes are all getting big. And I said, come in here. I don't want to miss any. Make sure you, you know, point them out to me. Come on, you know. And I get him caught up in all the energy of it. And I get him in and my big plan is just to back out and close the door on the dude. 
and it works. It worked. Oh, yeah. I got him in there, and I'm his friend for life now because oh. I got the monsters, you know. So he's got his hands on the bars, his old cell with the bars, and uh, he says, "Mr. May, thank you, thank you for getting the monsters." I said, "All the days work. My privilege, you know. And if there's any more, you let me know. We'll yeah, yeah. we'll take care of." Them. And I don't doubt that he saw him, you know. I mean, who knows, yeah. you know, with a mental health person, you know, what they see and don't see. And so I talked to the mental health staff later, you know, yeah. the next day when I was in. said, oh, yeah, you know, he sees visions and hears voices and all this stuff. And, you know, we try to help him the best we can, you know, and mostly complies with what we want him to do in here. But every once in a while, he just, you know. So I said, well, I had one of those last night. But I told him what I did and said, yeah, it's. Good work. Good, yeah. Got yeah. him in there. Yeah. You could have responded differently and yeah. caused more issues and everything else. That was a great way of handling that. <laughs> what do you feel is the most important thing that the public should know about corrections? You know, you've had such a long career, 38 years. What do you wish the public knew more about corrections? I guess several things. One is the staffing. Uh-huh. It's uh, a 24 24- and seven business. Um, you work in all the different holidays. It's a great sacrifice to work out there, yeah. to work as staff at a prison, not just the, what goes on inside the prison, but just how it affects your family. Yeah. Being away for different things and not being available for different things because you work. And it's always been a challenge to fully staff a prison and especially now where it just takes a few minutes to resign or quit and just decide you don't want to do that and to replace a person it takes weeks to to get a person hired put them through an academy and have them successfully complete the academy and then after a candidate completes the academy and they actually work in the prison some people just find it's just not what they really want to do. It's not what they thought it would be like. Mm-hmm. And they resign, you know, even after the, you know, within the first year, yeah. there's a lot of turnover. And it's such a challenging job. It's really hard to get qualified staff to hire them and get them to stay. And I think the public probably has a sense of that, mm-hmm. that it's challenging yeah. to find people willing to work out there and there's a perception among the prison staff like the only time it seems like people pay attention to us is if something goes wrong if everything's fine and we're doing our job we're out of sight we're out of mind and all the government money goes to other areas Mm -hmm. not necessarily the prisons and every year the Department of Corrections puts together a budget of how much money they need to properly run a prison. Mm-hmm. And it involves all kinds of things, yeah. you know, equipment, staffing, paying the power bill, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff. And vehicles and equipment and just lots of things goes into it. And the legislature approves it. They make their additions and subtractions. And again, it's just done every year along with the many other things the legislature does. So again, it's really a challenge 
to get the concerns of running a prison in front of the public because there's so many other things. You know, everybody's busy in their own jobs yeah. and in everything. So I don't know. I don't. I don't know what the answer is for that, honestly. Right. How to keep a good check and balance. Mm -hmm. But there is a good check and balance. The legislators come out and do tours, and the media comes out all the time mm -hmm. and does tours. Just walks around, and looks, and you know, makes sure you know the doors close and you know nobody's everybody's being fed and clothed and yeah. you know just general looking at what's going on in there. I guess being a private citizen now for the last three years, when I see a prison story, of course, you know, I stop everything and <laughs> run to the TV, say, well, what's going on now? Right. You know, it's just, it's a, it's a lifelong habit now. This COVID thing has been, you know, a real issue because how do you safely isolate people? That it goes counter to running a prison, it's really challenging. Yeah. And I'm, I know they're doing the best they can with the resources they have, like every other prison in the country. Mm -hmm. So it's quite challenging. Well, is there anything else you want to contribute, share? I think I'm good. Well, we have kind of a, a call-off thing where I say, do your own time. How would you respond to that? Do your own time. That's something the inmates say among themselves. Mm-hmm say, you know, don't worry about my life. You worry about your life, and exactly. I'll take care of my life. It's, it's a, another way of saying mind your own business Yeah. In, in a prison context. Do your own time. That's what comes to mind for me. Yeah, do your own time, do your own number. Yeah. That's how we like to end the show every week. So thank you so much, Calvin. I appreciate it. I'm so glad you're here to tell this story that this – you know, this riot never got deadly or bloody like some of the ones that, that occurred here at this site. And appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you so much. It's been an honor and a privilege. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.